If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's strange that any historical episode should be studied in the light of should we bring it back? Because obviously there are some people who think that, you know, the London Blitz had benign side effects, but on the whole they don't say let's get the Luftwaffe to bomb London every August uh, so that we can relive this. That was Richard Vinan discussing proposals to bring back national service. I think that once the war broke out, uh, Britain ultimately had to intervene if, if British interests were going to be protected. Uh, but of course the way that Britain protected those interests was extremely ruthless and very, very damaging for Central Europe for decades to come. And that was Alexander Watson on Britain's role in the First World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of May 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week's podcast is a Wolfson History Prize special. Since 1972, the Wolfson Foundation has been awarding a prize for the best accessible history book or books of the previous year. And past recipients include some of Britain's most esteemed historians, including Ian Kershaw, Martin Gilbert and Mary Beard. Well, the latest winners have just been announced, and they are Professor Richard Vinan for his book National Service, A Generation in Uniform, 1945-1963, to and Dr Alexander Watson for Ring of Steel, Germany and Austria-Hungary at War, 1914-1918, to both of which were published by Penguin. I was lucky enough to have a chance to speak to both Richard and Alexander in the Wolfson Foundation offices recently, to discuss the award and their thoughts on writing popular history in general. But before that, let's hear the views of Paul Ramsbottom, who is the chief executive of the Wolfson Foundation. The Wolfson History Prize is a a prize awarded by the Wolfson Foundation. It's got a long and distinguished history. Uh, The first awards were made in 1972. And the aim is a simple one. It's to reward books that have been written at the highest scholarly standard but which are accessible uh, to the average reader. These are books that you might take away with you on summer holidays. And I know you're not a member of the judging panel, but do you know what it was about these two books that really impressed the judges? That's right. The judging panel um, are four distinguished historians, and they're really looking at two things. First, uh, the importance of the book from a historical perspective um, you know, it, is it well researched, well written um, is it moving the understanding of uh, the field forward 
In other words, is it at the highest standards from a scholarly perspective? Um, but then secondly, it's very much about how well articulated the book is, uh, how compelling the writing is, and how accessible it is to, to an average audience. And these two wonderful books uh, struck both of those notes. It's interesting. I mean, generally I say how difficult a job the judges had. And in a sense, that's true this year because there were some extraordinary and outstanding books. But when it came to it, these were the two very clear winners. That was Paul Ramsbottom. And now it's over to the two winners, Richard Vinan and Alexander Watson. But just before we begin, we have a short advertisement break. Without Winston Churchill's inspiring leadership, Britain could not have survived its darkest hour. Without his wife Clementine, however, he might never have become Prime Minister. As the Sunday Times described, the influence of today's glamorous political wives is no match for that of Clementine Churchill. She guided Winston, chided Stalin, rallied morale on the home front and was unafraid to use sex to woo America into the war. Now the acclaimed biographer Sonia Purnell reveals Clementine's electrifying but often ignored story. From the personal and political upheavals of the Great War through Churchill's wilderness years in the 1930s to Clementine's desperate efforts to sustain Winston during the struggle against Hitler, First Lady seeks to recover the memory of one of the most remarkable women of modern times. First Lady, The Life and Wars of Clementine Churchill by Sonia Purnell, available now in hardback from all good bookstores and online. Published by Orem Press. Now let's hear from Richard Vinan and Alexander Watson. How did it feel to find out you'd won the Wolfson Prize? Uh, I was incredibly pleased. Uh, it's a fantastic honour. It's something I've wanted to win since I was 19, which was 33 years ago. That's, that's quite an early age to have that ambition. Uh, well, I was a nerdish boy, but um, uh, <laughs> it was when I was a first-year undergraduate, I can remember my first week at, at Cambridge, people telling me about the Wolfson Prize and me thinking this would be a wonderful thing. And you know, it's a very distinguished group of people who want it, so. Certainly, yeah. And that, how about you, Alex? Uh, I was completely and utterly overwhelmed and, and utterly thrilled as well. I, um, I I got the letter in my in my department's office and had to sort of stifle a cry, and everyone was sort of looking around thinking, "What's going on?" I changed it to a cough and disappeared quickly. But uh, yeah, it was it's, it's utterly amazing. Richard, what do you think winning the Wolfson Prize will mean for you in your career? I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a pleasure in itself. Um, I think it. Alexander and I are slightly different in that he's winning at a very early stage in his career, so it's the beginning of, you know, brilliant things. Uh, I like to think that, um, for me, it's sort of that, you know, my younger colleagues will suddenly think... And what about you, Alex? How do you, what do you think this will mean for you? I, I don't know, um, but what was really important about winning was uh, was the kind of the validation of the book. That was, that was the really, really important thing, because the book was really tough to write, and to, to get this... This prize, it was 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 as I said, completely completely overwhelming. That's that's that, that's what really feels very very important. And do you guys see that a prize like this does that, does that matter almost more than good book sales, or is it more important to just sell lots of copies of the book and have lots of people reading it? Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, there's kind of special thing about the esteem of one's peers, I suppose. When Alex said. Because the book was so hard to write, it felt nice. I feel that really strongly. I mean, it's by far the hardest book I've ever written in terms of research. And then you get to a point where it feels 
almost unwritable as a book because it's so complicated and because there are so many different things you want to say and because you get to the point where you think you know about things which are very important but which are very obscure to the outside world. So it's nice to feel that one might have got through in that kind of way. So what the Wolfson Prize is, is holding aims at clearly is accessible history. And did, did you both set out to write books that would be accessible when you sort of began these projects? Yes. Yeah, I, I wanted to do two things. I, I really wanted to... Uh, Ring of Steel is about the First World War from the perspective of Germany and Austria-Hungary, and I, I wanted to give academics uh, a really well-researched uh, book about the war which looked at things from a different angle which brought in archives and areas of Europe that hadn't been looked at before but of course I, I wanted to have a bigger impact than that as well I wanted pe- wider people to, uh, I wanted the widest public to read it as well so 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 yes I did set out to do that and of course Penguin as well my publisher makes it clear that that's what they want too so so there's both of those considerations and was that the same for you Richard absolutely yeah I mean I am um, I've always tried with varying degrees of success to write the broadest possible public and I think uh, I mean obviously there are some kinds of history books if you're writing about econometric history certain kinds of intellectual history which are just intrinsically difficult to communicate to a broad audience but I think historian ought always to be trying we're not writing you know quantum physics so we ought always to be aiming for the broadest possible audience and on the whole I think a well-researched scholarly book ought also to be a book that's attractive to a broad audience because the whole point about history is that it's meant to have a kind of resonance. And sometimes, of course, if one's writing contemporary history, one's writing for people who themselves are historical actors in the process one is describing. Well, certainly in your case, the, a lot of your audience went through this yeah. went through this process, which, I mean, is that a different kind of challenge than when you're writing about people who are very much sort of dead and no longer able to write to you? Yeah, it strikes me. It, it is a particular kind of challenge. Um, and obviously... Um, uh, it's different from Alex, who presumably doesn't assume that a Hungarian general is going to come back and um, denounce him. I mean, um, it's a very particular kind of thing. Partly, it reminds me of, you know, Lytton Strachey's crack about um, the Victorian age can never be written because we know too much about it. Mm-hmm. And when people are still alive, of course, you get multiple accounts coming in so that there's a kind of complexity of trying to sum up lots of different individual experiences. Um, so yes, it is particularly challenging to write about a group of people who are still very much around. Although I think I'm lucky because people always say, well, you know, our national servicemen, are they like a very disciplined military generation? Which I don't think they are. But I do feel they're actually a very polite generation. Um, so that they've been very kind of tolerant of me, um, even when they don't agree with me. And Alex, you mentioned earlier that you wanted your book to reach out to both historians of the field and also the general public. Is there any tension between the two? Is there, do you ever have to make compromises to keep one of those sides happy that might affect how it's received by the other group? I didn't think so. I mean, I, I agree very strongly with what Richard has just said about history being, history should be as accessible as possible. Um, and one of the nice things, I think especially about the the sort of scholarly society or or, or, or community in, in, in Britain is, is, that there, is, is that that's not by any means a marginal opinion. I think there's a broad acceptance that history should be well written. We're trained to write well as well as tra- trained to analyse. Um, so no, I mean, I, I think they go very much hand in hand. And um, do you, when you write a book, do you actually sit there with a picture of who your reader is in your mind? Yes, to some extent. Um, so... My first reader is very often my father, who in this particular case was a national serviceman. Oh, he was, right. Um, now, I mean, uh, it must be said that uh, his view was always that it was 
several boring years, two boring years of his life, and that it might be several boring years of my life to write about it. Um, so that probably I've converted him less than I have in most of my books. He's normally very, very enthusiastic, and um, uh, I felt I had a hard job with this book. So, so I was writing for a particularly demanding reader in this case. So you actually have a specific reader in your well, mind? Yeah. yeah, I mean, to some extent. Um, and I think one should always write on the assumption one's writing for... And my father's a, a very eminent physicist, in fact, but you should write on the assumption you're writing for an intelligent person, but not a person who knows about mm. history, necessarily, or knows about the particular history you're writing about. And what about you, Alex? Do you have someone in mind? When you... Not so much. I mean, I, I, I tortured my wife through several years by, by, by reading her bits of, uh, of, of and redrafted bits of, 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 of the book. She's an economist, not a historian. Um, but she liked it, so I thought that's a good sign. Um, but I think maybe my situation is a bit different because, as has already been said, the people that I'm dealing with are dead. Um, I suppose any, any view of readership that I had was kind of vaguer. You know, the book was time to come out for the centenary of the outbreak of the First World War. And therefore, what I was thinking about when I was writing was, was of course, the historical actors themselves, but also a bit about the stories and the teaching and the myths and the memories that I'd kind of accumulated growing up in Britain, being told about the First World War, the slaughter on the first day of the Somme, was this a British victory or wasn't it, this debate going on in the background. Um, and I had that all in mind when I was trying to write something very different, a very different perspective. So, so my view of my readership, I think, was, was, was a bit, bit vaguer, but, but it was still back there. Did you envisage your readership being mainly in Britain, or obviously because the country you're writing about is mainly Central Europe? Did you were you envisaging a reader in Central Europe, maybe even in Russia or America? Um, I certainly didn't want to simply. Uh, I mean, this, this isn't a national history, and and it, it's 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 much more than that. And in some senses, because I am British, I've 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 grown up here. Um, I was playing off to some of the stories that are told about Britain's war and, say, uh, and to say, well, actually, let's look at that from a different perspective. It wasn't necessarily like that. Um, but no, I mean, thinking about um, the US, thinking about uh, people in Central Europe, in Germany and all of the successor states to the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, I wanted to tell them a story that hadn't been told before. And of course, because this isn't a national history, because this is something beyond that, I, I, I think I was able to do that. And when you're both writing... Uh, well, accessible history. What is it, do you think, about books that make them accessible? Is it more the language? Is it kind of the use of a lot of quotations and anecdotes? Is it sort of not putting too much historiography in, or is it really just a combination of these kind of things? Well, I think partly it shouldn't be kind of formulaic. And I think, in fact, one of the big advantages of, of history that's written for a wide audience is that it forces you to think in a way that, curiously enough, purely academic writing doesn't always do. Because when you're writing for other academics, you're writing on the assumption there are all sorts of unspoken things that understand, jargon, key words, references to a historiography that, that are widely known. When you're writing for a non-academic audience, you do actually have to think what needs to be said here. You have to think about how I say it in the most succinct and elegant way. And I think that's not just a kind of a process of selling a book, it's also something that forces more intellectual rigour into you. So there's nothing like reading a sentence through and thinking, do I really need that word? Mm. Uh, constantly trying to make it as tight as possible. And, you know, I think that can also force you, when you think, what does this sentence really mean? 
that's actually quite an intellectually challenging thing to do sometimes. So I think, on the whole, popular history should also be good history. And I think, you know, this is uh, something that has been traditionally true uh, in the, if you were to look back in the 20th century, the important historians were usually also people who wrote for a large, to a large extent for an audience outside purely academic circles. I'd agree with all that. I think that uh, I think that clarity of prose is really, really important. I think it's it's utterly crucial. I think the other thing which which kind of helps is uh, is having the possibility of, of of taking a subject that is known about in some sense, either through personal experience or through teaching. I mean. In my case, First World War, key part of the curriculum that, that I went through, um, but being able to twist it a bit, being able to say, "Look, this is this is this is an event that you think you know about, but actually, let's look at it from somebody else's perspective who took part in that." And I think that can help to trigger interest too. And if you combine the two, I think I, I think that's that's good. And um, potentially, I think I think this is quite unusually. Both of you with the same publisher, and a publisher that obviously has a very strong reputation for putting out books of popular history. How much guidance did they give you as authors about what they felt a wide history audience would want from the books? Well, we're both published by Simon Winder at Penguin. Um, or was Simon is our editor. There's obviously a big team at Penguin. I think Simon is um, just marked by great enthusiasm. So I've never actually heard Simon mention anything vulgar like sales, although I assume they're on his mind all the time. Um, you're just writing for someone who's excited by what he regards as being good history. And so... On the whole, when he says, I don't like something, he just says, I don't like it, rather than, you know, this won't sell in whatever. And Simon himself is a historian, isn't he? He's written... Oh, yeah, very much. Books of his own, so I guess he sees it from both sides, doesn't he? Yeah, no, I mean, there's always a dialogue with Simon, and also uh, I always think that Simon, rather like the Wolfson Foundation, is one of those kind of, um, you know, like the secret powers of European diplomacy before 1914. He's one of those kind of figures who operates behind the scenes and probably has much more influence than a, a lot of academic historians because, um, in practice, he feeds back to his authors and, to some extent, of course, one does know what appeals to Simon. So uh, when you say, who's your ideal reader, I mean, it's not unknown for one's reader to be Simon in terms of even yeah. planning a book. And so, Alex, for you, this... I don't know, is, am I right to say this is your first big popular history book? That's right. So did... Did Penguin, did you feel they had to give you like more guidance of, of writing this market, or actually, again, was it quite hands-off? And... No, my experience was, was similar to Richard's, I think. I mean, above all, what marks Simon out is, is, is massive enthusiasm. Uh, massive enthusiasm. I mean, we, we, we met in 2008 and discussed this, and, uh, and he was very enthusiastic about... He invited me to draw up a book proposal. I did. He was very enthusiastic about it. And that enthusiasm has, has kind of continued through the many years of the writing of the book. And it's good because um, it gives you some guidance, uh, but it also keeps you going. It keeps you going through the hard years of sitting at your desk, sweating over, sweating over a laptop. So, so 2008, so, I mean, so this book's been a really major project for you, and I, I, I think I'm right that your book also took several years of work to do. So what does it feel like to finally finish a book like that, and then also to get this kind of, you know, this recognition of the books you've written? Well, it's a huge relief to finish them, I can tell you. Uh, so I did enjoy the book a lot, and I felt uh, it was a kind of... Um, I mean, Neil Kinnett once said that, you know, leading the Labour Party was his midlife crisis. And sometimes this book, which I started, I suppose, in my mid-40s and finished in my early 50s, was my midlife crisis. So that's, you know, it's a very emotional process. Emotional because it took a lot of time and because it meant a lot to me. And also emotional because 
I was writing about a generation who were close enough to me for me to understand some of what they went through. And although, obviously, on the whole, national servicemen don't go through anything like, you know, fighting on the Eastern Front in the First World War. Nonetheless, some of the things I was writing about were things that I think people had found very painful at time. So in that sense, it's a long, wrapped-up process. It meant a lot to me. In some ways, I was sorry to finish research in the book, uh, but I was immensely glad to finish writing it. And what is the writing process like for, for a book like this? I mean, do you... Would you guys sort of sit down and say, right, today I'm going to write a thousand words and just be disciplined and finish? Or is it a lot more complicated than that? Is it a lot more sort of drawing up a, a few passages and blending them together? And I've never written a long book, so I really have no idea how this works. I found it more complicated than that. Um, I mean, I, I, I did often say to myself in the morning, right, I'm going to sit down and write a thousand words, but you know, even the best laid plans... Um, I spent a lot of time planning that that because because uh, and this would be the same with Richards because well, there's so many themes that you want to bring in there's so many ideas that you have and piecing uh, a book together so that on one hand each chapter gives a cohesive part of the picture while contributing to a greater whole is saying that's really really difficult and time consuming to do uh, so my ambition to do a thousand words every day didn't work out like, didn't work out like it was that. more complicated than that and what about for you Richard? Uh, similarly, it was always more complicated than I thought it would be. So there are lots of days when I did sit down and say, I'll write a thousand, day, a thousand words. Uh, a few days when I did succeed in writing a thousand words. Quite a lot of days when I tore up a thousand words at the end of the day and said, that's all rubbish. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a complicated, messy process. I think one person I should mention uh, is my cop editor. It's called Bella and who lives um, out near Heathrow Airport. Um, who's an extraordinary figure and who did have a huge impact on the book. And um, she copied my last book too, and I, I kind of pretty much wrote it into the contract that she would do this book. Um, so she was a very, very effective person and kind of ruthless in a good way. But is that kind of what you need? You need someone to someone tell you even harsh truths about your books? That... Yeah, I mean, um, a competitor comes in quite late in the day. Um, so the particular formulations of mine that she dislikes and she particularly disliked my capacity to express doubt so she said you know we've now had kind of 15 on the one hand on the other hand could we just have a clear statement <laughs> and, and I was trying to think looking at the two books and thinking about parallels between them I thought one interesting parallel is the fact that both books sort of deal with forgotten histories that actually connect to really well-known histories so obviously Alex you're taking a subject a lot of people know but looking at very looking at it from a different perspective and with you, Richard, I suppose you're taking the generation that kind of gets missed out. And everyone talks about the war generation, people talk about the 60s generation, as you say in the book, but your generation is kind of missed out. So do you, do you guys see that parallel between your books as well? Well, I think they're, they're forgotten in different ways. So obviously, in some ways, uh, the history of the central powers in the First World War is incredibly present in that, you know, this is the history leading to Hitler and everything. You, know, you could say this is the epicentre of 20th century history. Um, but on the other hand, forgotten in the sense that people aren't alive to remember it, and in the sense that uh, perhaps especially in 2014, I suppose it got a bit marginalised in a rather Anglo-centric view of the um, anniversary of the First World War. I think in my case, it's more the kind of uh, forgetting that goes the ubiquity. So it's one of those things, everybody sort of thinks they know what national service is, um, but actually, when you look closely, it's rather more complicated than what everybody thinks. And what, what do you find, think about that, Alex? I mean, do, from your point of view, did you feel like this was a history that needed telling? Because it just, certainly within Britain. 
Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I, I, I think that, well, not even just in Britain. I mean, the, the, the national memories of, for example, Britain and Germany are, are, are very different about the First World War, in part because of how the war ended, in victory on one hand, which is why the British remember it, but a, a very bloody victory uh, in defeat in the case of the Germans. Um, and, and for the Germans, the First World War has largely been, the memory of it has largely been swamped by the greater horrors of the Second World War. So in that sense, I really felt that I was, I was telling something different, something that was forgotten. But more than that as well, and one of the things that historians try and do is empathise to an extent and try and see things from the point of view of the historical actors that's, that they're investigating. And that hadn't been done with Germany and Austria-Hungary, just as it hadn't been done with the national servicemen that, that Richard looks at. So I, I think that's, that, that is one place in which the books link. I think maybe the other place is in concern over... Um, over the human experience, the human experience of, of military service, the human experience of war, and both of our books focus very closely on, uh, if you like, in inverted commas, ordinary individuals who went through these experiences, and, and I think that, that links our books too. Would you say they're both history from below? Is that a fair description of them? I suppose maybe a bit of a blend. Yeah, I think history from below sometimes can become a bit of a cliche in that, like lots of things, like gender history, like cultural history, like transnational history. I mean, all history, in, in a way, should, should be aiming at all these things. So I suppose what I was trying to write, perhaps, was a uh, history that took both sides in, into account, took kind of high politics and also the experience of very underprivileged people into account. I, I think with, with the First World War, it was a total war, so to write about total war, you've got to write total history, and history from below in and of itself isn't, isn't enough. The, one of the key arguments the book makes is that uh, this major war, this all-encompassing war, could only be fought by popular consent, by bringing everybody in. Um, so, of course, this history from below was very important, but what's really interesting is when you can tie the history from below with the history of what's going on in above and how they interact and interlink, and that's the key. I thought it was interesting that both your books, um, despite being very accessible books, were actually very modern history books, and I thought that the kind of approach you took to them, because a lot, of, certainly a lot of the popular history books we receive are very sort of old school kind of great men history, and yours both had lots of interesting thematic ideas that made them seem very modern, actually. I thought, from an academic point of view, they were quite modern, but also then worked on a popular level. Yeah, I think, um, uh, I mean, again, I think one can get too hung up on what would be modern and what would be traditional. I'm always struck by um, uh, Cathy Burke's claim in her biography of A.J.P. Taylor, which is that A.J.P. Taylor used the phrase invented tradition, which everybody thinks Eric Hobsbawm invented in 1979. A.J.P. Taylor actually used it in his book on the Habsburg Empire in, what, 1937 or 39 or something like that? Um, so that, uh, you know, I think one, one should just write the history, uh, history as best one can. Um, and I, I think... Uh, in some ways, actually, recently popular history has turned a bit more to great men and that perhaps that would have been a bit less the case in history that was very kind of accessible um, in past years. Well, that's yes, kind of what I meant in the sense that actually your books are more sort of current academic themes as opposed to a lot of the popular history, which is very much great men nowadays. And, and Alex, a point you mentioned earlier about empathy, um, which I, I thought was quite interesting in your case, did you find it hard to kind of divorce yourself from being British and growing up with very much the British view of the First World War and really put yourself on the other side? 
Not so much, uh, in part because I'd worked on Germany and Germans before, in part because I'd lived in Germany for two years and I also lived in Poland for two years, so I know and, and to some extent identify and have sympathies with, with the area. Sympathy, of course, is different from empathy, but sympathies with, with this modern part of... The, the, with, with, with modern Central Europe. Um, but what it did do was getting into all these sources, I, I began to feel increasingly angry with how the people that are usually presented as the goodies in this war, the British and, and the Americans, um, how they behaved during the war. I, I, think, I think that uh, when you get so immersed in the sources and you, you start thinking about things, how people at the time saw them... Um, Things do make actions do make much more sense, uh, but you do become much. You, at least I, I found I got, as I said, quite angry with actors whose sometimes quite ruthless and quite violent actions really hadn't been explored. And as I said, particularly the government, the actions of the British government, the actions of the, of the U.S. government. And have you had much response? Because certainly there are a number of historians and also people in Britain who think very much that Britain was certain was in the right in the First World War broadly, and that Germany was broadly in the wrong. Have many of them come back to you in response to your book? The response I've had are overwhelmingly positive. I mean, the, the main response has been, oh, I hadn't actually seen it like that before. Um, in terms of aggressive responses about, um, no, you know, Britain was completely in the right and, and it was perfectly justified to have a naval blockade which contributed to the deaths of a million Central Europeans. I mean, this is quite a hard sell anyway. Um, so, no, I haven't had that. The, the, the overwhelming response has been, this is actually, this is, I hadn't seen this, I hadn't seen things this way before, and it makes more sense now. And it's interesting, because I don't think in Britain, many people, certainly many people in the public, would know about this naval blockade. It's so important as it was to the war. It's not something, we think about, you know, the Somme, Passchendaele, a bit about gas maybe. It just seems like it's just dropped off popular understanding here. Well, I think that memory, both individual and national, is very, very, very selective. And of course, this is one of the things that historians attempt to do. They tend to they attempt to break down these memories and say, well, actually, yes, maybe that is true, but it's only a small part of a much, much, much bigger story. And Richard, what kind of response have you got from surviving national service people? Because obviously you didn't go through it yourself, you said your father did. What, how have they reacted to the book? Well, they've been tremendously polite on the whole and very kind of tolerant. Um, their responses are quite interesting. They're slightly skewed, obviously, in that one big problem with writing about national service, which goes with this question of something being at once ubiquitous and kind of inscrutable, is that we know vast amounts about what it was like to be an educated middle-class national serviceman, which might be someone serving with quite a lowly rank. So Keith Thomas, I think, was a corporal during his national service, although... Um, as one of my colleagues remarked, you know, quoting E.P. Thompson, when Keith Thomas said some nice things about my book, he, uh, one of my colleagues said, well, of course, it's wonderful to have rescued a senior fellow of all souls from the condescension of posterity. Um, uh, so th- th- there's that group of highly articulate people. Uh, there's a group of people I think one always knows less about who are less likely to write letters in response to a book, which are working class, uneducated national servicemen. And particularly there's a group of people who I think probably have a very hard time in national service, who are neglected, who are we'll say 20% of the population who in the 1950s will be semi-literate, those kind of people, um, who obviously are the, are the group who come across in statistics and army reports but leave very few first-hand accounts of their own. Because your book, um, I'm right to say, did certainly challenge the popular view of how national service was and presented quite a few sort of negative examples of what people went through. Did, were there national servicemen who reacted to that, felt 
that that didn't represent their experience. Yeah, there are lots of them who, who feel that. Um, some of them saying, well, you know, my own memories are benign. Um, some of them supporting it, actually. I mean, the, the, quite a large group of National Servicemen, I think, who do have negative memories. And, of course, memory changes over time. Mm. So my own feeling has always been that it's actually very hard to pin down what the National Service experience was. And that this is probably a particular problem for one of those topics that tends to be seen as worth about three lines in a general history of Britain. So that if you're writing about the First World War, I suppose we know that the Eastern Front is different from the Western Front. Uh, we know that, you know, Gallipoli is different from Flanders, those kind of things. Whereas national service tends to be summed up very briefly as either a good thing or a bad thing. My own sense is that, first of all, it's a good thing or a bad thing, depending on who you are, but also according to when you're asked. So if you ask someone at the beginning of their basic training, they would say, it's the most unhappy period of my life, I can't survive this. If you ask them at the end of their basic training, they'd probably say, I'm now proud of having got through this. Uh, if you ask them when they were young, I think a lot of them would say it was boring and a waste of time. And if you ask them when they're old, they often say, I look back on it now with nostalgia. And those different kinds of memories, none of them are exactly true or untrue. So they're all kind of competing at the same time. And I suppose in, in both books' cases, there's a huge amount of source material to draw on. I mean, for yours, obviously, so many people who still alive went through it, and the amount of source material on the First World War must be gigantic. How, how do you go about narrowing that down to to sort of write your books and also to work out which sources you're going to want to quote, because that must be a really difficult task. You have to start with the theme. I think that's the key thing. I mean, with, with, with Ring of Steel, the theme was uh, how was this war seen by the instigators and losers, by Germans and by Austro-Hungarians? And why did it ultimately result in being such a huge catastrophe for this area and fragmenting the society and radicalising politics in leading the way on to the greater horrors of, of uh, totalitarian dictatorships, of another world war, of genocide, all in this area. Um, and if you start with that theme and you've, you've got these clear research questions in mind, then you look at... Uh, you look at... at, at you go through the archives and you let some extent the documents guide you within, within those themes. So to give you an example, um, by thinking about the war from Germans' perspectives, it seems obvious when you do that that the invasion of Germany by the Russians in 1914 is critically important to any German living in Germany in 1914, but it has hardly any place at all in, in, in any of the history books before, before mine. Um, and of course, in mine, it has. There's a whole chapter devoted to these invasions because I started with this perspective, and as I said, that kind of that kind of guides you. That that helps you sort out what you really think is important for the story you're telling. And what about for you, Richard? Because there's, I suppose you could do unlimited oral history interviews. Yeah, um, there are two things, I suppose. One of which is that my history is slightly different from Alex. Is in that uh, the First World War, I suppose. You know, it's an event with a beginning, an end, and to some extent an outcome. Um, now, national service is a messier kind of history where there's no victory, there's no defeat, there's not even necessarily a clear beginning or a clear end. Um, so I probably had a messier set of themes uh, and a more kind of changing set of research questions. Uh, and I could have asked, I think, different questions and come up with a different kind of book. Um, in terms of oral history, I, I did relatively little oral history myself, in fact, and I felt oral history raised kind of complicated questions in my mind, which I don't know the answer to, and which 
I didn't feel that the big literature on oral history necessarily addresses just partly very simple questions of kind of courtesy. You know, what, you, what happens when you interview somebody and then you feel at the end of the interview, I've drawn conclusions that are exactly different from the conclusions that I can see my interviewee is drawing from what he's just said. Um, so, you know, people who've given up their time, been enormously helpful and so on and so forth, then you feel, well, I might end up writing something they don't like. And it's not as if I'm interviewing, you know, it's not as if I'm doing show where clearly the aim is to undermine the accounts people are giving. These are people I respect and like. Um, so I, the amount of oral history that in the end I use in the book was relatively limited. I used a lot of interviews conducted by other people, in fact. So vast numbers at the Imperial War Museum, where they've just gone through interviewing Korean War veterans, very useful. And the other thing, of course, which I suspect is true of both our histories, is that armies are wonderful bureaucratic institutions, which throw up information about the most mind-bogglingly obscure things. So I often found that I could tell you the number of Danish speakers in the British Army in 1951 from army statistics. Uh, I could tell you some things that are very useful for historians of civilian life, like about educational levels about young men in the 1950s, or I don't know whether this is a, a true figure or not, but the army certainly believes it knows the number of 18-year-old men who are virgins in 1949, and I suspect they know more closely than anybody else, except presumably the boys themselves knows. Um, so you get that kind of information, but then things that seem really mind-bogglingly obvious that you need to know, it turns out that the armed forces haven't compiled statistics or don't know the answer to them. Or sometimes, of course, uh, willfully choose not to record certain things. So some surprisingly obvious things, you find apparently no archives at all on them. And I suppose that the danger with, with oral history interviews is, is the vagaries of memory, where people are talking years and decades later. You, you don't know how much that is really what happened, as opposed to when you, you get a diary or a letter from the time. Do you, are they like more trusted sources? Well, I mean, all sources are untrustworthy, obviously. Um, so that, you know, a letter from a young man in the Korean War is a letter to his mother often trying to reassure her. So you get sort of uh, very strange wording sometimes in documents from the time. Um, you do sometimes get, in terms of official army documents, deliberate deception, where they're obviously trying to cover things up. Um, and um, so in that sense, I think all kinds of documents are, to some extent, unreliable, but usually not unreliable because of deliberate deception, just unreliable because they tell you something but possibly something about the circumstances under which the document, whether it's an interview or a letter or whatever, was compiled, as much as they do about what it purports to describe. And Alex, I guess what I was interested in with your book is you're dealing with so many different nationalities and so many different languages. Did you have to go out and learn 20 different languages or was there enough sort of translation available? Well, most of the research that I did focuses either on German speakers or on Polish speakers, because those are the two languages that, that I have from the area. And that, that gave me... A lot, because most histories, especially of Austria-Hungary, focus on just the Germans. So to be able to focus on the Polish as well, which in itself, Poland and the areas that have been occupied by a Polish state and by Polish people in the past have been core areas but that tend to get squeezed out of history by Germany on one hand and Russia on the other. Um, this was enough to give the book uh, both a rather different perspective and an understanding of what peoples further east went through. Um, in terms of Czechs, Slovaks, Slovenes, Hungarians, and all of the other nationalities in the Habsburg Empire, I was able to draw some material. There was a lot of material in German that was translated and a little bit as well in English, so I was able to bring that in too. And um, another parallel I thought between the two books was the fact that both of them have, you know, 
more than parallels in the sense, certainly with, with your book, with what's happening with now with Russia and Ukraine. And I guess, Richard, with your book, there's, there's constantly this talk you hear in this radio and the newspapers about, should we bring back national service? Is this what the youth of today need? So do you feel that your book can make a contribution to these modern debates? Well, I can make a very simple contribution to should we bring back national service, which is no. Although I think it's a funny kind of question to ask in the sense it's uh, one of those questions where, in the end, everybody answers no. Um, and it's strange that any historical episode should be uh, studied in the light of should we bring it back? Because obviously there are some people who think that, you know, the London Blitz had benign side effects. But on the whole, they don't say, let's get the Luftwaffe to bomb London every August um, uh, so that we can relive this. Um, so in that sense, saying, should we bring back national services is a strange kind of thing. Uh, I think there are contemporary resonances, which I felt, and maybe you did, Alex, about writing in two particular kinds of contexts, one of which was obviously the centenary of the First World War, which is very kind of direct for you and perhaps less direct for me. And then this tying in with a changing military culture in Britain as the army becomes very small, very professional, very specialised, very removed from civilian society, I think. But also, and this struck me very much reading the kind of last accounts of the soldiers coming out of Afghanistan, it seems to me that the British have never been more sentimental about their armed forces than they are now. So that uh, war is recalled very much in terms that are usually sympathetic to soldiers, uh, in which soldiers are increasingly seen as victims. Um, I think, curiously, looking at what I was studying, it struck me that there's a comparison which um, would be between how we think about war now, 2014, 100th anniversary of the First World War, and how we would have thought about it in 1964, just as national service ended. Uh, and it struck me the British were actually very anti-military at the time when most of them had military experience. Probably in the early 1960s, a high point of British men, certainly, having been through the armed forces. And that's also the period in which there's a lot of anti-militarism around. And what about you, Alex? Do you think that your book could inform the, certainly the debates about what's happening now, certainly with Russia and Ukraine and that part of Europe? I think that to some extent it does, yes. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why we write history is in order better to understand our present. And... If we think about uh, what happened 100 years ago in what was Western Ukraine, there are kind of some disturbing parallels. Um, and one of the things that uh, the Tsar says in April 1915, when, when the Russians are deep inside what is now Western Ukraine, is that, um, is that there's an ambition, the Russians have an ambition to... to um, build, or as he terms it, rebuild a, a greater Russia right to the Carpathians... And I think that if we think back those hundred years ago, and of course you can go further, what what all this tells us is firstly Russia's deep emotional investment in Ukraine um, and a lot of uh, the ways that the Russian army behaves, um, uh, the importance of religion as well that you're, you're, you're kind of seeing playing out today in that part. Ukrainians own, especially in the East at that time, but even in the West a hundred years ago, ambiguities uh, about their own national identities. Um, there are also parallels there. For me, one of the most striking things was just how far Russian influence has retreated um, in that area. Uh, the events that I'm talking about, the, the invasion of, of Western Ukraine, uh, hundreds of miles further west, 100 years ago, 
Uh, and at that time, there is some Ukrainian speaker support for Russians in this area. Um, now, to get Russia's support, of course, those, uh, that Russian influence has retreated much, much further to the east. And I, I think that being aware both of um, Russia's emotional investment and also how much Russian influence has shrunk over the last century, I think both of those can help us understand why Putin is behaving in the way that he is in Ukraine today. And do you think the actors in, in this kind of current crisis are aware of this history? I think to some extent, yes. I mean, I'm not sure that... I don't think in either case the First World War is particularly strong in, um, in the uh, iconography and the imagery and the symbolism that is coming out of the uh, Donetsk People's Republic or, or, or of Russia or in Western Ukraine. But these areas, this, this area has been a um, contested area. Uh, for many, many centuries. And the First World War is, is simply part of that history. And the First World War, obviously you said that your book came out for the, the centenary of the war. Do you feel that the way the war centenary was commemorated in Britain was appropriate? I mean, or from your point of view, do you think we uh, played the German side wrong, overplayed the British angle? I think that it was inevitable that the British angle was going to be focused on, in part, of course, because these were nationally or locally organised uh, ceremonies, by and large, um, in part because of the boom in family history, where people are really interested in what their grandfather or great-grandfather was doing specifically in the First World War, because I think it's so tied to British national identity. So I wasn't, I wasn't surprised about the local and national focuses or foci of... Um, uh, of of the centenary celebrations, but I hoped that what my book could contribute to that was was this different perspective, how the other side saw it, and I think it makes a lot more sense. The war makes a lot more sense, and if 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 you look at that too. And Richard, do you find the First World War also cast a shadow over the subject of your book? Because the people who who served national service grew up in the post First World War era, didn't they? And that was those are their formative years, I suppose. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it casts a shadow in the sense that. Uh, military experience of sometimes their fathers in the First World War, uh, sometimes their fathers or elder brothers in the Second World War is something they're very aware of. Uh, Cast an influence in the sense, of course, all social history is very long-term history, mm. so that all sorts of questions like growing up with men who've been wounded in the First World War, growing up in the Second World War with fathers who were often absent, all those kind of things cut across people's lives. So that any history of young men between 1945 and 1963 also has to be at least a history that goes back as far as, say, 1928, when the first three people are born, and also perhaps to some extent after, you know, later on in terms of how they remember things. Um, so, yes, I think it does. And also, uh, one key thing is how much, as far as Britain is concerned, the First World War creates a literature which then defines how we remember certain kinds of history. So these guys are incredibly aware even when they write unpublished accounts of kind of Robert Graves' certain tradition of how you write about war. And actually one thing that I thought was interesting in your book is you talk about people who went into national service hoping to then forge a literary career out of it, that mm. they, they kind of expect they wanted to be the next Siegfried Sassoon or something. Mm. So, I mean, that must be really unusual to go into war hoping to become a writer out of it. Yeah, it is indeed. Um, well, maybe it's, maybe it's common. Maybe um, Alex has people... Um, uh, in the Austro-Hungarian army in 1914 who, who think they're going to become writers out of it as well. Um, uh, it is an, an interesting process and um, again obviously it's something that uh, concerns primarily a, an articulate minority 
Uh, I think one of the strange things that happens, of course, is that because the 60s come along, people have a different perception of what's historically important after national service ends. So there's a kind of slightly swept-aside group of national service novels and autobiographies and things which are important at the time but then tend to be forgotten from the early 1960s onwards. And there's a lot of stuff that's unpublished which I think deserves to be published. I mean, the historian Peter Burke writes a diary of being in a Singapore pay office in the 1950s. It's just a wonderful book, kind of full of this rather kind of sharp anthropological observance that he has, um, which, you know, it's worth going to the Imperial War Museum just to read it. And do you think it's that just the Second World War so dominates histories of the kind of mid-20th century? Is that why these books, these works are being forgotten, really? I think partly that, partly, as I say, because of what comes later. Mm. I think the, um, the 1960s generation... So of the Wolfson jury, of course, we have a national serviceman, but then we have two very characteristic baby boomers from that very confident group of young men, young men especially, I think, who were young in 1968. Um, And they're very sure that, you know, the history of modern Britain is the history of their generation. So I think they've slightly kind of shouted out the national service generation. And uh, just sort of coming on to the last couple of questions, I'm interested to know which, with you two, which kind of popular historians do you both admire or have maybe inspired your writing? Uh, I mean, I hesitate to say this because um, he's so associated with a certain view of uh, Habsburg Empire and Central Europe, but uh, I read A.J.B. Taylor a lot when I was young, who I still think is just a a wonderful writer, and I think a wonderful historian. Um, I admire French historians a lot, and I think we probably overstate the extent to which the great historians of the Annales School are kind of highly theoretical historians. I think very often, actually, they're historians who have the qualities that we like to imagine the English have, in the sense they're very good writers. They're rather literary figures. They proceed very much by kind of intuition, suggestion sometimes. So I think people like Pierre Nora are fantastic historians. What about you, Alex? Well, I mean, I I guess I I grew up with a a different set of historians. I I grew up with Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson ended up as uh, as, as my doctoral supervisor as well. So I owe him a big debt, especially in, in how I write. Um, and I think uh, another big influence is Norman Davies, too, uh, who, who did these wonderful books, first of Poland and then of, of, of Britain and Europe, and the, the, the broad expanse, uh, and especially in, 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 in these areas which are, uh, are very ethnically and culturally mixed, I, I, I think I've, I've found very inspiring. Um, I think I'd, I'd name those two. And it's interesting you mentioned Neil Ferguson because he's obviously famously got a very strong view about, about the First World War, particularly whether you know, Britain was right to fight it. Do you, to what extent do you kind of share his opinions on that? And if you disagree, were you able to tell him? Oh, yeah, no, I disagree with, with Neil on many, many, many things. Um, I thought... Uh, I'm not sure that he is right about uh, Britain not intervening. I, I, think, I think that once the war broke out... Uh, Britain ultimately had to intervene if, if British interests were going to be uh, protected. Uh, but of course, the way that Britain protected those interests was extremely ruthless and very, very damaging for Central Europe for decades to come. So your view of the war is not so much that it was Britain was wrong to do it, it was more the, the way it was waged. Uh, yeah, I would. Yes, I, I think that's. I think that's. I think that's. That's probably true. Can I ask? A question to Alex. Of course you may, which yeah. is that I wonder slightly whether one of the things that might happen with the way the British see their history and future is that there's a funny kind of feeling ourselves to be special 
which involves assuming we ought to be more moral than other people, hence the kind of guilt about the British Empire and so on and so forth. And it seems to me what you've just said is that Britain's a great power, defending her interests with the ruthlessness one expects of great powers. This is a banal story in the sense that this is how one expects great powers to behave. Maybe what we need to do is just to say, well, Britain now, as a great power, is in the past and should just be studied in the way we study other great powers. I think that's true, but I think there's also something exceptional about Britain, uh, not simply because it's a great power, there are many great powers in, in 1914, but uh, because it's a maritime great power, which does separate it, and that means that it fights this war differently from its continental allies and competitors, uh, and above all, it fights it with economic means, with naval blockade means, and I, I, I think that... Uh, I think that that does make it exceptional in radicalising the war in a way that nobody else does. And I think, that's, so I think, I think there is something true in, in, this, in this sense of Britain is different. Yeah, and it's a wonderfully interesting line, actually, as well, in the sense that being a naval power sometimes goes with a British sense of superiority, which is partly moral superiority as well as military superiority, in the sense that navies can't put down riots on the whole. So the idea of the navy is a kind of liberal institution, um, which doesn't interfere in domestic politics, and which allows Britain to be powerful without being militarised at home. Yeah, I think that, that the military, uh, that armies, when they do bad things, they do them bloodily. The damage is visited, on, yes. absolutely <laughs> visibly, exactly. Navies, when they do damage, do it at a distance, but in some ways, actually, they're, they're, they're even more lethal. Yeah. And actually, Alex, I'm interested to know, how do the Germans and the Austrians, and I suppose the other people from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, how do they feel about their role in the war now? Do they share the British view of of, you know, that they started the war and they were culpable for a lot of it? Well, uh, especially in Germany, things are changing. I, I, should, have, I should have said another, another um, popular story and popular academic story who I hugely admire is Chris Clark. And, of course, his sleepwalkers has uh, caused massive debate in Germany over this issue of how responsible was Germany for the First World War. The consensus in Germany at the time, uh, up until his book, was very much that um, the, the Fisherite consensus of, of Germany having sole responsibility. And his, his view has very much divided public opinion, um, and the book was, was a, a, a huge bestseller. Um, so from not really having that much interest in the First World War, as I said, it was really swamped, the memory was really swamped by the Second World War. Now we're in a really interesting period of memory flux in Germany, and I think, I think that's going to continue, and I, I hope my book contributes to that. And Clark's book, where he, I think he's, he basically kind of defends Austria from saying this was a real sort of terrorist act against them, and that's been very controversial in Britain, hasn't it, because that sort of changes the way we think about the war. If Austria and Germany aren't culpable, then Britain's position becomes very different. Sure, well, I don't accept Chris's argument in, in, uh, as far as Austria-Hungary is concerned. I think that I think he's far too nice about Austria-Hungary. I think Austria-Hungary is a deeply malevolent and destructive force in, in, in Central Europe, and I think it bears more responsibility for the war than everybody. But, of course, it's interesting that these debates still, 100 years on, uh, are, are still evoking the differences and the passions that, that, that they do. This is clearly a massively important event. Hmm. And so both of you have, have kind of written books that are still very much ongoing stories. Are you planning to carry on researching these areas afterwards or are you going to move on to new projects? Uh, I'm going to move on to new projects, though I'm not entirely sure what yet. Um, so, I mean, all history is a continuing story in the sense that there's always some link, even if it's only obvious to the author, mm. between one book and the next. But I don't propose to write another book about national service. And is it, is it hard to then suddenly sort of drop one topic, say, right, we're going to do a completely different topic and not sort of find yourself veering back into the old one? 
No, I don't think it necessarily is hard. Um, I think it's sometimes quite useful in the sense that just makes you rethink things. There's a lot to be said for just throwing away one set of research notes and saying, you know, there are things I regret about what I did with some particular research project, but I'll try and apply those lessons for the, for the next one round. What about you, Alex? Do you have an idea of what your next move will be? After finishing Ring of Steel, I vowed never, ever to write anything on the First World War or in general on military history again, in part because I, I arrogantly thought that I'd answered pretty much every question that anybody could possibly ever ask about the First World War. And also because by the end of the book, um, I, I, I felt quite sort of miserable about, uh, 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 about human nature and about human, humanity's tendency to, 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 to fight and do all these awful things against each other. Um, now... I've still got one or two questions about the First World War that I'm thinking about answering. Um, And I've got thoughts as well about the wider 20th century. So I could still go in either direction. I'm making my decision now. And obviously you're both um, active professional historians. Are you influenced at all in your work by the students you teach? Yes, although not this time, partly because I had some very generous funding from the Levy Hume, which meant that I was on leave for three out of the last four years, in fact. Um, so I've had less contact with my students at any point in my previous career. Um, and also because, um, I suppose because it's a bit of a kind of generational blank for my current generation of students, uh, it's not something they feed back on very much. So my previous book was about Thatcher, Thatcherism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, although my students are too young to have lived through Thatcherism, they have very strong views on it and they see it as very much part of the world they live in now. Before that, I wrote on Vichy France. I have a lot of French students. Um, so again, I had a very strong sense of how French historiography plays out with a generation of young French people now for whom things like the Second World War and Vichy are enormously important. So in that sense, this is probably the one book I've written where my students, although curious enough, I'm writing about people of undergraduate age, uh, are a missing link. But you, Alex, do, they, do your students shape the way you work at all? They did so much with, with this book, in part because... Uh, in part because I didn't really teach the First World War up until I'd finished the book, or at least was in its absolute final stages. Um, I guess in two ways, but but really sort of fairly indirect. I mean, one way was that uh, part of the time, of course, I was in Poland and, and having contact with Polish students and thinking about students I'd known as a student, as a British student, just gave me a sense of, of very different perspectives of this period of history. Um, and the other way, more broadly as well, is just again thinking about um, how people of my age and also younger have had the First World War presented to them. Um, and, and having contact with students reminds you of that because it reminds you of how different, or it reminded me of how different the story I was telling was from what we learn at schools. That was Richard Vinan and Alexander Watson talking with me at the Wolfson Foundation offices. Alexander's book, Ring of Steel, Germany and Austria-Hungary at War, 1914-1918, to is out now in the UK, published by Penguin, and in the US, it's published by Basic Books. And some of you may recollect that Alexander has previously appeared on the podcast to talk about his book more broadly. And if you missed that episode, it's still available to download from all the usual places. It was first released on the 31st of July, 2014. Richard Vinan's book, National Service, A Generation in Uniform, 1945-1963, to is also out now, published by Penguin. 
Richard was one of the speakers at last year's History Weekend, and I'm pleased to say that tickets are now on general sale for 2015, when we're running not one, but two weekend events, at Malmesbury Wiltshire from the 15th to the 18th of October, and in York from the 25th to 27th of September. Full details and tickets can be found at historyweekend.com, and BBC History magazine subscribers will get a discount on the ticket prices. Now it's over to Emma McFarnan for the latest history news. A scandal has been exposed at the heart of ancient Egypt's animal mummy industry after scientists revealed that about a third of the bundles of cloth are empty inside. Teams from Manchester Museum and the University of Manchester scanned more than 800 mummies, ranging from cats and birds to crocodiles, using X-rays and CT scans. About a third of those scanned contained complete animals, which have been remarkably well-preserved. Another third contained partial remains, but the rest have been empty, BBC News reports. Researchers believe there was a huge appetite for these religious offerings, and demand for the mummies may have outstripped supply. In other news, thousands of letters that revealed the bizarre health tips of the 1780s have been made available for the first time online. Written by patients all over the world to a pioneering Scottish medic, William Cullen, the letters offer a fascinating insight into the weird and wonderful world of 18th century medicine. Regarded as one of the greatest doctors of his age, William Cullen received hundreds of letters from patients seeking advice and treatments. Cullen's unusual recommendations included cold bathing, bloodletting, purging and the application of leeches, the Telegraph reports. Cullen, who died in 1790, aged nearly 80, meticulously filed all his 5,000 letters and responses. The archive is held by the Sibold Library of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Previously, the collection could only be accessed by visiting the Sibold Library, but it is now available online. Meanwhile, new evidence from hundreds of skeletons buried during the Roman occupation of southern England suggests that town dwellers were healthier than their rural counterparts. Contrary to popular belief, urban dwellers were more likely to reach old age than their rural counterparts, said Rebecca Redfern of the Museum of London, who headed the investigation. Redfern and her colleagues examined bones from 344 individuals buried between 1 and 500 AD at 19 sites in what is now Dorset in southern England, New Scientist reports. Of the skeletons, 150 came from nine rural cemeteries and the remainder from urban cemeteries in modern-day Dorchester, set up as Dernavaria by the Romans in the 1st century AD. The town dwellers had a small but significant edge over country dwellers in terms of lifespan, the team found. Some 34% of them lived beyond the age of 35, compared with 29.5% of country dwellers. Thanks for that, Emma. And just before we go, here's a reminder that our May issue is still on sale for a few more days. Inside this edition, you'll find articles on the English Civil War, the sinking of the Lusitania, the Second World War generation, and the history of slave ownership, among other things. You can get hold of our May issue now, in all good newsagents, and digitally. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about a First World War disaster and the history of India. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode 
by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>